You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. Isaiah chapter 2. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord. And from the splendor of his majesty, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made up for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? This is God's word. There are basically two kinds of people in the world, idealists and realists. Which one are you? There's probably not a hard dichotomy between the two. There's probably a spectrum here, but let's talk about it this morning. So so let me see your hands if you fall more on the idealist 
side of the spectrum. You tend to see possibilities. You're future-oriented. How many of you, that's you? Not as many as first hour, all right? How many of you would say you fall more on the realist side? You tend to be present tense, concrete, that kind of a person, all right? How many of you live with someone who's the opposite of what you are? That makes for a lot of fun, doesn't it? That makes for uh, some fun conflict. I remember right after college, I lived with two friends of mine, Rogers and Chris. And Rogers and I were realists. The Chris was an idealist. And there lay the source of most of our roommate conflicts that we ever had. Right? So, for instance, I remember I was standing in the kitchen one time washing the dishes and drying them. And uh, Chris was standing there. He said, hey, you're using the wrong towel to dry those dishes. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I've hung two towels on the oven. The one on the right is for hands, and the one on the left is for dishes. You're using the one on the right. That towel is for hands. I like to think that since then I've become a little more sanctified. But I wasn't very sanctified in that moment. And, and so... Something just kind of tweaked in me, and I was like, really? You know, like I'm, I've lived with guys who didn't even wash the dishes. I'm washing them and drying them, and you're upset that I'm using the wrong towel. And so from that moment, Rogers and I determined that we were just going to set our will against Chris in the area of the kitchen towels. And so we basically made it our job to be as obnoxiously provocative as we could. So Every day we would switch the towels. Sometimes we would take one of the towels and put it in the bathroom and use it as a hand towel. Sometimes we would take both the towels and replace it with two dirty socks hanging on the oven. Just whatever we could do to just provoke and annoy Chris for his idealism because we were wicked, evil people who needed the grace of God. So that was, um, that was my experience early on in life in sort of the contrast between idealism and realism. Uh, here's the reality. Whichever side of the spectrum you find yourself on, Isaiah chapter 2 is a chapter for both idealists and realists. Uh, the beginning of the chapter shows us the ideal. The end of the chapter introduces us to what is current reality. See, what Isaiah wants to do is he wants to both inspire us and confront us. So he's going to talk about the ideal to inspire and, and provoke us to long for it. And he's going to talk about reality to bring us to conviction. That's how this chapter of this book flows this morning. And so let's look first of all at the ideal. It begins in Isaiah 2 verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. In the ancient Near East, places of worship were always built on the mountains, on the hills. Why? Because they were visible and because they were understood to be sort of closer to the heavens. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. 
And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Isn't this a beautiful ideal? Isaiah is painting for us a picture of the world we all want. If we had to summarize the picture he's painting in one word, it would just be the word peace. He's talking about world peace. This is the ideal that all of us long for, whether you're a Christian or an atheist, whether you are highly religious or highly secular, all of us agree that what we long to see in the world is full and final peace. In this picture that Isaiah is painting, owning a sword is a waste of metal. You don't need it. Might as well make it into a plow or a pruning hook so we can get to work tending the garden. There's peace between nations. It says they'll never learn war anymore. You won't need war college. You won't need a national defense budget. None of that matters because everything is at peace. And it's not only geopolitical. It's not just peace between nations. But look, it's, it's peace with God. Right? All the turmoil in your heart of who is God and what does it mean for me to relate to God and am I really doing what God wants me to do and do I really understand God the way I ought to understand God All that goes away and is replaced with, let's go to the the house of God so he can teach us his ways and so we can walk in his paths. Just a settled confidence in who God is, in God's desire to teach and instruct, and in our desire to follow and obey. And peace among individuals, right? Not just geopolitical peace, not just spiritual peace with God, but, but peace among each other. Look We together, right? All the nations, many peoples are all agreeing together. Yeah, let's go go worship God. Let's go learn from God. There's not little petty jealousies and divisions among different factions of people. There's not little tribes and denominations and sects with a T of people. I have to say that because that's a tense word. It's a vision of peace between and among humans. This is the world we all want. This is the ideal of human flourishing that we say, yeah, if we could have that, that would be a world worth living in. That would be a world that would be beautiful and glorious and wonderful. So what's the obstacle to that world? What keeps us from peace? Here's what Isaiah wants to show us. Pride and peace are incompatible. What keeps us from peace is pride. Pride is the great obstacle to peace in the world, in the church, and in your own heart. If we want peace, we must humble ourselves. Verse 5 is the hinge where this passage turns from ideal to reality. So remember, Isaiah wants to show us the ideal. He wants to lay out for us, here's the world we all want. And then he wants to confront us with, here's why we don't have that right now. And verse 5 is the hinge on which it turns. Verse 5 is an invitation. Notice, 
O house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's the path from pride to peace, is the path of coming and walking in the light of the Lord. That's what he wants to inspire us to and call us to and invite us to. And so Isaiah knows that he, he can't just hold up the ideal and say, here's what we want. He also needs to show us, here's what keeps us from getting that. Here's what hinders peace in our souls and peace in our relationships and peace in our church community and peace in our city and peace in our world. Here, here's, here's what the problem is. And so he's going to spend the rest of the chapter talking about reality, talking about the reality of pride. Now, in English, when we talk about pride, we often use the idiom, he's full of himself, she's full of herself. I want you to notice how Isaiah uses this fullness language. Look at verse 6. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east. They're into eastern religion. They're very tolerant and open-minded and pluralistic. They're open and welcoming and affirming of all faiths and all worldviews and all religions because after all, isn't there really many ways to God? That was the line God's people were believing. It sounds similar to today. It's not new. It's not novel. It's not different. They're full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. In their culture, as in our culture, this was seen as a mark of humility, right? It's humble to be open to all kinds of other faiths and perspectives and, and to sort of you know, make God in our own image because after all, that's, that's humility, to pre- not, to know, not to pretend that we know what God is like, but rather to say, I don't really know. God says, no, that's, that's not humility, it's pride. It, it means you don't have the courage and the humility to submit to what God has actually revealed about himself. Even when it's out of vogue and out of fashion and not politically correct and not culturally honored. God's people were more interested in being culturally fashionable than in being biblically faithful. God says, here's what your pride looks like. You're full of things from the east. You're so open-minded that your brains fell out. You've missed entirely the truth because you're trying to be so open and so welcoming. Verse 7. Their land is filled with silver and gold and there's no end to their treasures. They are wealthy and affluent and prosperous. Have you ever wondered why it is in the Bible that the poor are always associated with humility? Does it mean that the less you have, the more humble you are? Well, not necessarily, but isn't it true that when you are poor, you're more aware of your need? You know that you have need, but the more that you have, the more affluent that you are, the less needy you feel, right? You, you, you become self-reliant, self-sufficient. You can provide for your own needs. You can make a way for yourself. Your, your sense of need and dependence goes down and your sense of independence and self-reliance goes up. Part of the pride of God's people is 
related to their affluence. Their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. They're trusting in their military might, their own resources, their own strategies for protection and defense. They don't need God to protect them. They are self-protective. Verse 8, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. There's there's kind of an interesting play on words here in the Hebrew text. The, The word for God in Hebrew is the word Elohim. And the word that's translated idols here is the word Elilim. And it doesn't really mean idols, it means nothings. They're chasing after gods that are non-gods. It's a clever play, a rhetorical device that Isaiah uses to say, you you think you're bowing down to these gods. They're not even, they're nothings. They don't even have an existence. There's no reality behind them. See, pride makes us more impressed with what we have done than with what God has done. Pride makes us more impressed with what we make than with what God has made. Verse 9. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. And this is not a positive humility. This isn't virtuous, godly humility. This means they're humiliated. What he's saying is, the fact that they're bowing down to things they made with their own hands is an evidence of how humiliated they've become. How dehumanizing their pride has become. This is a a complete reversal, you see, of God's ideal. We already saw in verse 3, the ideal is the word of the Lord going forth from Zion. But instead, God's people are manufacturing idols. What's going forth is idolatrous worship. The ideal in verse 4 is that people are beating their swords into plowshares. They're turning weapons of war into productive equipment. But instead, God's people are storing up horses and chariots for their defense. We saw the ideal in verse 2 is that the nations are streaming to the house of the Lord of their own volition to learn of His ways and to walk in His ways. But we see instead the people of God of their own volition are running off to the east to see what the Philistines have to say about God. Pride and peace, you see, are incompatible. We can't have the peace that God offers as long as our pride is in the way. I wonder, are you aware of your pride? Do you know what pride looks like for you? Isn't it true for us that it's always easier to see pride in other people, right? You look at others and it's like you can spot, oh, this this person's into themselves or they're self-reliant or self-sufficient or self-dependent. I see pride in them. But, but isn't it weird how pride is so subtle and so deceptive and it's always easier to spot in others than it is to spot in yourself? Do you know what pride characteristically looks like in your heart and in your life and in your experience? Pride and peace are incompatible. So then, how is God going to bring peace on earth? How is He going to achieve this ideal of a peaceful society? Well, He's going to do it 
by dealing once and for all with our pride. The Lord of hosts has a day, verse 12. And I want you to notice the whole rest of this chapter is structured around and built around and teaching us about the day of the Lord. It's repeated in verse 11, in that day. Verse 12, the Lord has a day. Verse 17, in that day. Verse 20, in that day. Isaiah is telling us, reiterating this truth about the day of the Lord. And so I want you to notice as we read the focus on that day and the the focus on spatial language, up-down language. What Isaiah wants us to see is sort of the spiritual topography of pride, that what we do in pride is we lift ourselves up and we move God down. And what God's going to do on the day of the Lord is he's going to put himself in his rightful place and put us in our rightful place. He's going to reverse the spiritual geography and topography of pride. Let's look, verse 11. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan. Listen, the Lord has no problem with trees. Okay, what this is signifying is the pride of Lebanon was its timber export. It was known for its cedar trade. And so it was an expression of human pride in what we can produce and what we can accomplish. And God's saying, I'm bringing that low. Against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills. Remember what we already said about where idols were worshipped. Against every high tower and against every fortified wall are defenses and securities that we build up. Against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. Again, these were ocean-going ships. These were the means of export and trade. God's saying every example of human pride and human ingenuity and human self-dependence I'm going to bring down. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Isaiah wants to make very clear to you and to me this morning, the day of the Lord is coming. See, here's here's how pride makes us hardened to the word of God because we don't see this happening yet right it sort of seems like things just go on the way they are so I don't really see the damaging effects of my pride I don't really see it for what it is because after all the consequences aren't necessarily that bad life kind of goes on the way it is and I don't really see all that God needs me to see with regard to my pride and Isaiah wants you to see listen here's what you need to realize The day of the Lord is coming. 
And on that day, all of the pride and all of the haughtiness and all of the self-reliance and self-dependence and self-exaltation and self-trust and self-worship that we have is going to be brought low. Why is Isaiah seeking to drive this point home so starkly? Why does he want us to see in our mind's eye the day of the Lord and to recognize in that day our idols mean nothing, our self-dependence means nothing, We're going to be running, looking for places to hide from the majesty and the terror of the Lord. Why does he want us to see it that starkly? Because he's seeking to elicit a response. He's a biblical prophet. He's not just saying this so that we'll go, oh, wow, that sounds kind of awesome. Or scary. Or intimidating or freaky. Rather, he wants to elicit a response from us. He, he's telling us about the day of the Lord so that in light of that, we will change how we live in the present. See, we will either humble ourselves now or we will be humbled then. Isaiah is saying there's coming a day when God's going to humble everyone. In light of that day, it would be wise for you to humble yourself now. The, the, the response he's really after is the last verse of the chapter, verse 22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? Stop regarding man. Stop regarding yourself so highly. Stop regarding others so highly. Stop worrying so much about what people think or what you are to others or what you want out of life. Listen, your breath, my breath is in our nostrils, right? We're dependent on oxygen to even live. You stop breathing, you go away. What a terrible source of trust and hope and dependence. So so Isaiah is seeking that we would long then to be humbled now, that in light of the coming day of the Lord, we would go, okay, I want to humble myself now. I want to respond in humility to the reality of who God is and who I am. And so let's assume that, that for us, as we hear God's word through Isaiah, that's the response that we have. Okay, how, how do I humble myself now? What should I do in light of the day of the Lord? Remember when Ray Ortland was with us last week, he used this image of Isaiah being like a person standing in the distance and looking at a far-off mountain range. And from a distance, you can see that there's a mountain range, but you can't tell which mountains are closer and which ones are further away. It's just sort of a, a vague range of mountains. And, and from the perspective of Isaiah's writing, he's looking out there and seeing the day of the Lord. He says, I, this is coming, it's out there. The Lord of hosts has a day. But you see, as we move forward in redemptive history, what we find as the fullness of biblical revelation unfolds is that the day of the Lord that Isaiah saw is actually two days. It's a day that has two hearts. There is still coming a future day of reckoning, a future day of judgment when God will set the world right. 
But that final day was brought forward into history at the cross of Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord has come in Jesus for those who trust in him. See, Jesus was lifted up on a cross outside Jerusalem on a hill that has since been established as the highest of all mountains, the highest of all hills. There is no hill, no mountain, no high place in human history that has the significance of Calvary, the hill where Jesus Christ was crucified. Its shadow looms over all cultures, over every part of human history. It is the most important hill that has ever existed. It casts its shadow over all the rest of our lives and over the world. There's never been a hill more influential than the hill of Calvary. And on that hill, the haughtiness of man was humbled. And the lofty pride of men was brought low. Because on that hill, your pride and my pride hung Jesus on the cross. Your selfishness and my selfishness hung Jesus there. Our lifting up of ourselves caused Jesus to be lifted up in death. And when we see him lifted up, when we see him bearing the punishment of God for our pride, we are brought low. When we rightly see what's happening at the cross of Jesus Christ, the coming of the day of the Lord in time and space and history, we are humbled. We recognize That's for us. That's what we deserve. What Jesus is getting is our punishment for our pride and for our rebellion. And what that does for us then, when we see that with with the eyes of our souls, we cast away our idols to the moles and the bats. We stop regarding man whose breath is in his nostrils. And we begin to worship Jesus who alone is worthy of, of being exalted. And we enter into God's peace. Here's what Paul said to a church in his own day, a church of people like you and I. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Do you think Paul had read Isaiah 2? You bet he had. Do you see how he's grabbing all the imagery and all the language of Isaiah 2 and just cramming it into one verse? You turn to God from idols. To serve the true God, the living God, not the one that you made with your own hands, the one who really is and who made you with his own hands. You turn from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come, from the day of the Lord. I want to invite you today to be like the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians. I want to invite you to turn to God from idols, to worship 
Jesus. To be delivered by him from the wrath to come. See, you will face the day of the Lord unless Jesus has faced the day of the Lord for you. This day is still coming unless it has come for you in Jesus. I don't want you to miss the significance of that phrase in 1 Thessalonians, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I want you to catch this. Here's the wonderful thing about the gospel, is it changes our emotional disposition toward God. What what is the emotional disposition of the people in Isaiah 2? When, when, When Isaiah is telling us about the day of the Lord, And about this coming day when God is going to humble human pride. What is the emotional disposition of the people he's talking to? What does he say that day is going to create? Do you catch it? Terror. The terror of the Lord when he rises to terrify the earth. The emotional disposition of your heart toward God by nature is terror, fear. Deep within us, all of us know this is true. This is our emotional disposition toward God is fear. We're terrified of God. Because we know that God knows the truth about us. No matter how far we try to push that into the recesses and the corners and the crevices of our minds, all of us know God knows what all, all that there is to know about me. God knows all the truth about who I really am. And because God knows that, God is terrifying to me. Because God is holy and God is perfect. God is morally superior. God is without sin and without stain, without blemish. And I know that I ought to rightly be terrified of God. But you see, 1 Thessalonians 1, Jesus delivers us from the wrath that is to come. All the terror that the day of the Lord and that God's judgment on human pride should rightly create in us is removed. Our emotional disposition toward God then is changed. We no longer are terrified of God. We no longer fear the wrath of God. We no longer seek to hide in shame from God, but rather, we rejoice in the fact that Jesus has taken all of the wrath and the punishment and the shame and the guilt of our sin, and now our emotional disposition toward God is not terror, but what? Peace. We get to live in the ideal that Isaiah is painting at the beginning of chapter 2 because of Jesus. Romans 5, 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just peace with God in the end, when we stand before Him, but peace with God now, in our hearts, in our emotional disposition toward God. There's nothing to fear. So that means that we welcome repentance. We welcome change. We welcome the convicting and empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. It means that when Isaiah says, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord, we're able to say, 
Yes. Let's walk in the light of the Lord. That's a good idea. Let's do that. It means that when Isaiah says, stop regarding man, we say, yes, I want to stop regarding man. I want to walk with God. Cormdale, I want to invite you this morning to walk in the light of the Lord. I want to invite you to trade pride for humility. See, this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that because of what Jesus has done, we really can own up to and face the reality of our pride without needing to hide from it, excuse it, avoid it, push it away. We can confront it for what it really is. Yep, that's the truth about us. And Jesus died for us and God loves us. So I want to invite you this morning to to the work that Isaiah asked us to do, to, to trading pride for humility, to acknowledging the real truth about how our pride manifests itself. And to saying then, let's walk in the light of the Lord. Let's walk toward humility. What, right? It's always a destination. It's always a journey. It's not like tomorrow you're going to be the humblest person on earth. Let's walk in that direction though. So let me ask you the two questions. I just want to put these two questions in your mind as we close this morning. The two questions that Isaiah puts before us. Here's the first one. Who are you regarding? Who are you regarding? The Holy Spirit says through Isaiah, stop regarding man. Who are you regarding? In other words, whose approval do you crave? Whose attention do you feel like you need? Whose disapproval crushes you? Whose affirmation can you not live without? Who are you regarding? Proverbs says, the fear of man is a snare. Isaiah says, hey, here's what humility looks like. It means you can stop regarding man. It means you can stop living for the approval and the affirmation of people around you. Because you have the Lord's approval. You can stop fearing and regarding others because God is rightly regarded in your heart. Who are you regarding? The second question that Isaiah would have us ask this morning is, what are you filled with? What are you filled with? If... If pride is being full of self, what does it look like for you to be full of self? So so let's go back to that question we asked a few moments ago of what, what shape does pride take in your life? It's one thing to say the problem is pride. It's another thing to identify how pride looks in you based on how you've been formed and how you're wired and how sin has tweaked you. So let me suggest that you do this. Uh, I I got together with some friends yesterday morning and we just brainstormed a list of self-blank. If pride is self-regard or self-concern, then what are all the ways we can fill in the blank on how pride manifests itself in our lives? And so, so here are some possibilities. Some of you perhaps are filled with self-love. 
You just actually really love yourself. You think you're awesome. You're kind of into who you are and what you do in life. You kind of think everybody else should be into who you are and what you do in life. For some of you, though, you're filled with self-loathing. You can't stand who you are. Wish you were somebody different. But, but you see, your concern is still with yourself. One is very offensively oriented. One is very defensively oriented. One seems like I really love myself. One seems like I really hate myself. But the core of both is self. The answer to your self-loathing is to regard God. You, you don't need a higher self-esteem. You need more God-esteem. But some of you are filled with self-reliance. You're just the kind of people who are going to get it done. You're going to make a way for yourself. And at the end of the day, there's no place in your life where you really need God to show up because you've kind of got it covered. Some of you are filled with self-protection. You put up walls, keep people at arm's length, control all the conversations to make sure they don't get too penetrating and too close and that we don't have to talk about anything that's too personal. Some of you are full of self-righteousness. You're very into being right. Very convinced that you have to win every argument. Very convinced that you're right and others are wrong. And so you need to help them see that you're right and they're wrong. Some of you, like me, are full of self-will. This is the shape that pride takes in my life and in my heart. Probably not the only shape, but the dominant shape. For me, pride looks like my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In my household, at work, in my relationships. I want to define the agenda. I want to be in charge. I want to say how things are going to go. Self-will. And by the grace of God, He's refining that and changing that and humbling that. But, but you know what the, the key step has been is acknowledging that that's there. Having the eyes to see, oh, self-will, that's the particular way that pride tends to manifest itself in my life. And so you realize how challenging that is for me as a leader, right? Because my job is to will things. Like leadership is in some way making things happen by the power of the Spirit, Right? So I'm always having this internal dialogue. Is this what God wants or is this just what I want? Is this something God is willing or is this what I am willing? Is God leading us in this direction or am I willing us in this direction? That's a lot of my prayer life right there. I just let you in. This is one of the most important questions you can possibly answer for for the transforming grace of the gospel to really affect you. Apart from the question of who is God and what has he done for us in Jesus Christ, one of the most important questions you can ask is what does pride look like in you? If you don't know the answer to this question, you will be handicapped and handcuffed in your ability to experience the renewing grace of God because you don't know where you're stopping it up. You've got to know the answer to this question. And so the most important thing I can do for you this morning, and I think Isaiah is seeking to do for you this morning, is to say, hey, what are you filled with? What does pride look like for you? Do you know 
what specific repentance will look like. Do you know how not to just say, God, make me less prideful, but to say specifically, what's that going to look like on Monday morning at 9.30? Who are you regarding? What are you filled with? People of Corondale, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, I ask that you, in your convicting and enlightening power, would show us the particular answers to those two questions. Who we tend to regard and what we are filled with, the specific nature of pride in our hearts. Spirit, would you turn on the lights and would you show this to us? And even more importantly, would you help us to see the reality of the day of the Lord? Would you help us to recognize that it's important that we understand pride in our lives, not so we can be more self-aware, but God, because you're calling us to humble ourselves. Because it's the pride in our lives that works against your peace. It's our pride that hinders us from being the people that you want us to be in the world. And so thank you that you sent Jesus to take the day of the Lord on our behalf if we will simply trust in him and hope in him. I pray this morning that you would be awakening that kind of hope and trust in the people who are here in this room. Would you help us look to you, hope in you, trust in you, humble ourselves before you? Would you show us all the beauty of who you are and what you have done for us in Christ? Thank you that what you long for, what the world that you're bringing, the world that absolutely is out there, is a world of peace. Peace in ourselves, peace with each other, peace in the world. So Father, would you help us to embrace that ideal and long for it, and would you help us to embrace and deal with reality? What it is in us that hinders that from being more realized and more present in our lives and in our church. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. In Coram Deo and on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.